one of the key things that God wants from us is for us to be different, for us to shine and be different in the world. Not in every single way, but I mean, if we were different in every single way, the important difference wouldn't show out. I mean, in terms of our ultimate goals and priorities. And this, of course, is going to show outwardly, but it's not ultimately an outward thing. It's a heart thing, of course. It's about what we ultimately love and pursue. That's the difference. That's the core difference that God wants to see. Now, the word for what we love above all and pursue above all is the word worship. God wants us to be distinguished by what we worship. Everyone worships something, of course, and you can determine and know what you're worshipping by looking at what you give the highest priority to. As you look at your ultimate goals and ultimate priorities, that will be an indication of what you worship. There are many false gods in the world now as there were in the ancient world. Sometimes when we treat God in a transactional way, God wants a relationship where we're a real genuine relationship with us, but often we just relate to God in a very transactional way. And in a way, this is like treating God like an idol. Now, as I said, there are many false gods in the world today, and there certainly were many in the ancient world. It was full of false gods. And in those days, invariably, the kind of relationship that people had with their gods was absolutely a transactional relationship. People didn't really love their gods or pursue their gods in and of themselves. They kind of make bargains with their gods. They gave the gods what they wanted in order for the people to get what they wanted. Now, the theme that dominates the law of Moses and the whole Bible, for that matter, is the imperative to pursue God above all, not as a means to an end, but as the ultimate end and goal of life. And this, of course, is expressed most famously in that very famous verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where it says famously that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God wants our hearts. Now, according to the law of Moses for ancient Israel, the person who was to embody this kind of heart above all in an exemplary way was, of course, the king. And the law of Moses talks a lot about the king. God was going to give them a king. And there are these laws. And I read this last week. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says this, be sure to appoint a king over you that the Lord your God chooses. Verse 16, the, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is kind of shocking in an ancient context. Like that's exactly the kind of things that kings did. What's left after this? Well, you might wonder what's left. One of the things that people, uh, that kings did in the ancient world was to create laws. They were seen as semi-divine and they created laws that they handed down to their people. Well, maybe, maybe the king gets to do this at least. No. Deuteronomy chapter 17 goes on 
from verse 18 says this, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a copy, uh, on a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself any better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the left or the right. So what is there left here for a king? He wasn't to be a lawgiver either. Well, the king was to be, according to God's will, the exemplary worshipper of God. Now, this brings me to the story that we'll look today. It's a very important background for looking at the story of Saul and David. King Saul first and then King David in the first book of Samuel. We've been looking uh, at these stories and uh, the book, books of Samuel focus on the life of David. And David is the archetypal godly king. He's not perfect, but he's one who represents what God really delights in. David, in short, is depicted in the Bible as a man after God's heart. He's a lover and seeker of God. And this is evident not only from the stories that we read in the books of Samuel, but it's very evident from the Psalms. David wrote many of the Psalms. David was a skilled musician. Music invariably was connected with worship and David developed his musical skills to give voice to his heart of worship. Now, the way that the Bible highlights the character of David is in the way the Bible often highlights things and that is by contrast. When God wants to shine a light he tends to do so against a dark background. So it is that the first book of Samuel, which is really the story of David, actually doesn't start with David. Before David, there is King Saul. Now, as I said last week, Saul is the king that the people wanted, the king that was just like other kings in the ancient Near East. God gave the people what they wanted in Saul to show them, by contrast, the difference between kingship in the worldly fashion and kingship the way that God wanted it. In fact, we should pay attention to this because this highlights what God really wants in us. This is about us. There's no more important question than what does God really want? Well, this answers it. The interesting thing about the reign of Saul for many readers, a lot of people find, find this difficult to read. They feel like God is maybe a little hard on Saul. They kind of read about Saul and he kind of looks normal and he certainly was normal by ancient standards for kings. But see, here's the thing. God wants better than normal. And he certainly wants this in a king. And so we see that God rejects Saul, not in a personal sense, but as the leader of his people. And he raises up David instead. And the story is told in a way to, that highlights this contrast. And that's what I want to focus on today is this contrast that the text of 1 Samuel makes between Saul 
and David. So we can see in this contrast, particularly clearly, what is it that God really wants? Well, the contrast is seen in the first place in the difference between the two moments when Saul and David respectively are selected as king. This is a really interesting contrast here. Now, when Saul was selected and brought out in front of the people, the prophet Samuel's words are very telling. In 1 Samuel 10 from verse 23, it says, They ran and brought Saul out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Now, in a military context, this really matters. In a military society, this is important. He was a big, strong guy. Verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? Well, actually, it was the man the people chose, but God chose to give them the king they chose. Get that. Samuel said, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no, now listen to this. He says, there is no one like him among all the people. So Saul is seen to be qualified in comparison to everyone else. That's not the metric that God uses. But he's giving them a king that they want, you see. So in this case, in relation to everyone else, Saul's bigger and he's more imposing, he's stronger. And this is what they're after, the strong man. Now, compare this. Okay, so that's, that's the story that comes from the selection of Saul in 1 Samuel 10. Now let's go forward in time and forward in the text to 1 Samuel 16, a few chapters later. And it says this, from verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king that is in the place of Saul. Okay, so this is a bit later. Okay, now get this comparison. When they arrived, Samuel saw Jesse's son Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, not personally as king, the Lord, it says, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see the contrast. Now, verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So we asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. He doesn't even... He doesn't even name him. He's like the runt of the litter and he gets the worst job, which is out in the fields, tending the sheep. 
Samuel said, send for him. Get this. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, it would have been a long way away. They would have been standing, waiting for God's king to come. Verse 12. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, David has chosen, as it says here, because God looks at the heart. David has the right kind of heart in contrast to Saul. Now, let's look at how this difference is borne out in the story. It's particularly evident in the way that Saul and David respectively related to God. What we see in Saul It's actually something very familiar in the ancient world. He relates to God, to the true God, as most kings related to their gods. For example, in the ancient Near East, before going into battle, a king would make sacrifices to his gods and he would also make certain vows. And all this was to secure the favour of the gods as part of this transaction. It was to secure the favour of the gods. In fact, your soldiers... If you're a king, your soldiers would not go into battle until you had done this. Well, this is exactly what we're going to see Saul doing. So as the story goes, the Philistines, this formidable force of Philistines, assemble against Israel for battle. And Saul kind of rushes to offer a a, a sort of token sacrifice, which he's explicitly told not, he's explicitly told not to do anything until the prophet Samuel arrives. Of course, he offers this sacrifice to placate the soldiers who are starting to lose heart. So he's bargaining with God, placating the soldiers. And he does this in defiance of God's word through Samuel. So when Samuel arrives and sees him doing this, the dialogue goes like this in 1 Samuel 13 from verse 11. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favour. You know, tick. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Samuel's talking, of course, of David. Then in another battle situation, same battle kind of context, Remember I said the other thing that kings do is that they would make these great vows. And Saul does this. He binds his army with a vow not to eat or drink until they defeat 
the Philistines. Now, what does this remind you of? God, if you will help me defeat these enemies, I vow to do this. Well, reminds us of the story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, who makes the foolish vow to sacrifice. says, God, if you will help me defeat my enemies, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house. I think knowing that it would have been his daughter. Now, in the ancient world, the, the greatest offering that you could offer was your own child. This is, I know it's shocking, but this was actually quite common. Child sacrifice was quite common in the ancient Near East. It was another way of bargaining. It was the ultimate way of bargaining with the gods. And unfortunately, this is what Jephthah did. God doesn't want this. And we see a similar thing in Saul. He makes this foolish vow in the absence of Jonathan, his son, who breaks the vow. And now get this, Saul is willing to sacrifice his son to secure the victory. And the only reason actually Jonathan, who was a godly man, the only reason Jonathan survives is because the army steps in and stops Saul from doing this. And so we see his disposition. He's a man that uses religious practices to get, what's, get what he wants to serve his ambitions. And it's in direct contrast to this, that David is seen as the one whose heart is for God. David doesn't bargain with God. David worships God. And that's a very big difference. This is seen most powerfully later in David's life, in fact, um, when David's much older and he has a son and the son falls ill. And it says in the text that David prayed and fasted and he put on sackcloth traditional, you know, uh, traditions of prayer and he prays and he prays. But after all of that, his son dies. And when he finds out that his son is dead, it says this, it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. I think this is just an amazingly powerful verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. This is David's response when he hears that his son is dead. This is where a lot of people just, well, I'm, that's it. That's it between me and God. It's over. This is David. It says, then David got up from the ground and after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of God and worshipped. He worshipped God. Now, the contrast between Saul as the strong man and King da and, and sorry, and David, the worshipper, comes to a head in a very, very curious story, actually, at the end of 1 Samuel 16. It's actually just before the account of David and Goliath. I think it most probably happened after, in fact. But the, the writer is putting this story here for, uh, for a reason, to make a point. I think it, it kind of sets something up for the story of David and Goliath, which, is, uh, which Jono is going to look at uh, with us next week. So at the end of Samuel 16, we're told that Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. It's interesting, it says an evil spirit from the Lord. 
It's not the first time we see this kind of thing in the Bible. We have other instances where it, where God has essentially evil spirits. This is the, the mysterious sovereignty of God. God in his sovereignty even has evil spirits ultimately doing his will. And in this case, it's to bring something to the surface in Saul, to show up something about Saul. And it's this. Saul was, and this is the point, I think, of this, absolutely powerless. He could not resist this evil force. He was absolutely powerless, no matter what he did, powerless in the grander spiritual theme, uh, scheme of things. But guess who is brought in and who is able to vanquish this evil spirit? David. Saul's attendants knew about David's musical skill. And as I said, in those days, this invariably had connections with worship. So David comes, and this is what we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 23. Whenever the evil spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. It's a musical instrument. He would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Saul could not fight off this power with all of his military strength, with all of his human strength. But David vanquished the evil spirit with his worship. I think this passage is an indication of how it was always to be with God's people. God was showing, this is how you defeat your enemies. This is the sort of person you must become to be victorious. And remember, this moves straight into the story of David and Goliath that we're going to look at next week. David is shown to be strong, not because he was an impressive man of war like Saul, but because he was a worshipper of God. And it's understood here and shown where David's strength comes from. It's expressed in the Psalms so often. One of the most beautiful expressions is in Psalm 27. Listen to this, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. How? How is this possible? This is how. Verse 4. This is the heart of David. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David didn't care about anything else. All he wanted in every situation was to find God in that situation. Whatever happens here, 
David saying, I just want to find God and that's all I care about. And there was such a peace that came from that. He says in verse five, for in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle, in the place of worship. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Then my head will be exalted, not because I'm a head taller like Saul, but because though my feet are on the ground, my spirit touches heaven in worship. And so He sets me high upon a rock. So my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle, He says, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music. I will sing and make music to the Lord. This is what delights the heart of God. We often think it's the quality and quantity of our religious achievements or our moral life. And I mean, those things are great. But God is primarily interested in this one thing, our heart for Him. In fact, a person who fails dismally in every respect, but who out of this experience, nevertheless longs to be made right with God. This is the person who delights the heart of God. God doesn't want us, He doesn't doesn't primarily want our achievements as much as He wants us to serve His purpose. God wants a people who delight in Him. Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Which is Himself. You know, the most expensive gift that God ever gave us was Himself. He came to us in Jesus Christ to suffer and die so that we could be with Him and so that He could dwell in us by His Spirit. Now, the fact that this is what God paid the ultimate price for means that this is what we should ultimately desire. Let this be true of you, that you are a man, that you are a woman after the heart of God. And let this be true. Let this be the thing that characterises us as a church, that we would make One Hope Church a place of worship, As we move forwards, I have such a strong sense of God's desire to lead us to a deeper place of worship. We're going to make more time. We're going to create more spaces for worship. Churches, you know, churches often get characterised by teaching. And teaching is great. But here's the thing. Teaching is a means to an end. Teaching is to lead us to a place of worship. Worship is the ultimate. And by the way, by worship, I mean that in the broader sense. 
There are many different expressions of worship and that includes musical worship, which is, I think, one of the most wonderful ways of worshiping, of expressing our worship of God. And we're gonna go deeper and further in our worship. We're gonna make this a place of worship what we're made for. Worship is what will give us the victory. Worship is what will make us shine in the dark. And worship, the disposition of worship, the desire to pursue God above all, that disposition of worship is what God delights in. Let's delight the heart 